one of the things I focus on is the distinctiveness of each of these categories of narrative and poetry in the Bible, that they're formally very different, right? They look different. They're marked in different ways so that you can distinguish prose narrative from poetry. But they also then seem to be used for different purposes. So to become, to my mind, a, a good literary reader of the Bible, means not just to become a good close reader, that, that, you know, that, that sense of putting in the work, doing the analysis, seeing things that are often very nuanced, but are a part of the artfulness of the text. Welcome to It Means What It Means, the podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. Today's guest is Todd Linnefeldt. He's a professor of biblical literature in the theology department at Georgetown University. Today we'll be discussing his book, The Hebrew Bible is Literature, a very short introduction from Oxford University Press. A quick word on this very short introduction series. I'm a big fan of it. I have been for almost 20 years since I found out they existed. There are hundreds of them on myriad topics. For example, this year on my birthday, my wife bought me very short introductions for nothing and infinity. So they literally have one for everything and nothing. So I encourage everyone listening to go see which of these books might be interesting to you. As always, the books that are mentioned in the episode are listed in the show notes. So without further ado, Todd Linnefeld. Todd Linnefeld. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'd like to start out having the guests tell the listeners a little bit about themselves. All right. Yes, my name's Todd Linnefeld. Excuse me. I'm a biblical scholar and a professor. I teach at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., trained in Hebrew biblical scholarship, but I'm a generalist and I teach all sorts of classes, main, almost entirely undergraduates. So a lot of undergraduate teaching. I've been at Georgetown University for 27 years, I believe, uh, which seems impossible. And my primary interest, and I think this is what we're mostly talking about today, is what typically gets comes under the title of reading the Bible as literature or thinking about the literary art of the Bible. You're right. So the subject of the conversation, mostly today, it'll go wherever it goes, but at least it'll start with... The Hebrew Bible is literature, a very short introduction. I love the very short introductions. I have a bunch of them. Yours mm-hmm. is number 478 of probably a thousand or more that are out there. Is it 478? I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> the notes from my Kindle. They told me it's book 478. And it's a very interesting book because the concept is to take a very complex issue and condense it down into maybe 150 pages as a rule, that's how they approach these things. I suppose the best place to start, and you address this in the beginning, is that you're not trying to solve the debate about what literature is, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a big question. So as you're attack, as you're tackling this subject in the book, what did you settle on? How did you settle on the approach that you took? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so the book is, as you say, in this series by Oxford University Press uh, uh, called Very Short Introductions. And I guess there are many hundreds of them. And clearly, most are not about the Bible or religion, right? So they cover all sorts of subjects. And they're these kind of cute little books that are sometimes displayed 
in bookstores at checkout counters and things like that. So my book is one one volume in this much larger series. And so it's written, the book is the Hebrew Bible's literature, is written for a general audience. It's not written for other scholars necessarily. Someone who might just pick this up and say, oh, this sounds like it might be interesting alongside the book on history of, of London or any other number of topics. So it's the Hebrew Bible's literature, as you say, and the question, one of the questions I have to deal with at the beginning is, it's actually really hard to define literature that a lot of people think, and I think this is basically true, that any hard and fast, that any hard and fast definition of what constitutes literature has some weak spots, has some problems with it. At the same time, that's true with all sorts of things that we nevertheless go ahead and call by a particular name, right? That just about anything that's interesting when you get really start pushing at the edges of it and definitional limits of it, there's always some gray area and some, some sort of test cases. So I have to begin by thinking about what, is, what does it mean to read the Bible, the Hebrew Bible especially, or the Old Testament as literature. And I come down, I think, on, in two ways. One is to think of it as highly, I think at one point in the book I used the, uh, the metaphor of highly fabricated works, highly fabricated literary works, right? Things that authors have intentionally shaped and put a fair amount of work into to do things that go beyond just conveying information, right? That it's clearly not just here. This, uh, we want to teach you something. We want to give you some information, but rather this, these are highly constructed, often polished literary works that require in order, I think to read them well, that require a certain amount of attention and a certain amount of skill. I think a quote I didn't use in the book, but which I like is uh, there's a quote from uh, Toni Morrison. I remember seeing that she talked about the fact that how often people would come up to her. I think it was especially about her novel, Beloved, which was very widely read, but also difficult to read in some ways. And she talked about people coming up to her and, and often saying, boy, I really like your work, but I found Beloved really difficult to read. And her response, she said, her kind of stock response was, yes, I found it very difficult to write. And so the idea is that if we have authors who are actually putting quite a bit of work into shaping this material uh, in ways that go beyond just conveying information, then we ought to be willing to put in the effort to read it well. So the notion in the first place, the notion of this is the, the these texts are the products of kind of skilled craftsmanship that reward a close engagement. And then the second thing, so that's kind of the first thing is to treat these as polished, crafted works that reward close attention. But then the other thing I say is in the book is it's not just a question of craftsmanship. It's not just a question of complexity as productive complexity, but also of particular forms and genres. And that we have actually a long tradition of identif identifying a couple of main types of works that we call literary, that we call literature. Uh, and especially there's three big ones, certainly in Western literary tradition coming out of Greek and Roman and later European literary criticism, three main categories of what we tend to identify as literature, narrative, poetry, and drama. And of course, the Greek tradition and the Roman tradition and European tradition has quite a bit of dramatic literature, right? Quite a bit of literature that's produced for a stage. It's meant to be performed out, meant to be performed live in front of an audience. Biblical, so that's one of the categories of uh, traditional literary criticism of literature. 
the Bible doesn't seem to have that. Ancient Israel didn't seem to have a, a theatrical tradition. It doesn't preserve any of that category of dramatic literature. But we do have in the Bible the other two, narrative and poetry. And so the book ends up focusing on these two genres, we might say, or these two modes, these two types, basically, of literature, narrative and poetry. And so the point of the, the sort of goal of the book is to give readers a sense when they get to the, look at the Bible, what to look for, what, what do we identify as literature, but then also, how do we look at it? How do we engage it to provide some tools for reading those texts? And it seems like biblical literature is an interesting case, as you say, because though it uses poetry and narrative, it does it in a different way than other ancient cultures. Yeah, I think that one of the, the things that I try to do in the book, which I think is in many ways been neglected to a certain extent over the past 30 or 40 years, I would say the past 30 or 40 years, there's been a lot of exploration of let's say the Bible as literature or thinking about the literary categories in relationship to the Bible. But as you say, one of the things I kind of focus on is the distinctive, the distinctiveness of each of these categories of narrative and poetry in the Bible that they're formally very different, right? They look different. They're marked in different ways so that you can distinguish prose narrative from poetry, but they also then seem to be used for different purposes. Uh, so to become, to my mind, a good literary reader of the Bible means not just to become a good close reader, that, that, that sense of putting in the work, doing the analysis, seeing things that are often very nuanced, but are a part of the artfulness of the text. So on the one hand, that sense of close reading and close engagement is putting us into the literary mode. But beyond that, close reading, we also need to recognize, I think, the distinctiveness of each of these genres. And that we read, we should read uh, narrative differently than we read poetry, that the authors are using different literary toolkits and doing different things with those toolkits that if we don't recognize that, if we don't take account of those differences, we can end up misreading, expecting to find narrative elements in these non-narrative poetry texts, or as sometimes people will do, broadly attributing, poet, broadly calling, labeling texts as poetry in kind of an imprecise way and that they don't really have the markers of biblical poetry. And defining poetry as an art in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the terms are, when you push them a little bit, become a little fuzzy. For me, it's the sort of main marker, the kind of formal marker of what makes something poetry and gets us the beginning of a definition of it is that it has lines, right? That it's lined out, it's lineated. This is another way to refer to poetry in this sense is verse, that it's in verse form, which is the counterpart to prose. So if we think of prose as just, if you have a page in front of you and you're handwriting, you just write till you get to the end of the page and go back to the next line, and write till you get to the end of the page and nothing really stops you except the limit, maybe the physical limit of the page or a kind of an intellectual, you may make a decision that, I'm done with this particular thought, so I'll end the paragraph, start a new paragraph. So you have a few things that break up the prose. But otherwise, if you're writing or if you're typing on a word processing file, you don't really pay attention to the margin, especially on a computer, right? On a word processing file, every, all that's taken care of for you. So prose fills the page, let's say, and that's its form, right? And the, the meaning of, the, of anything written in prose, the meaning doesn't depend on at what point you start the next line. Right? The experience of reading it doesn't depend on what when you start the next line. 
So, of course, undergraduates, when they're writing papers, will shrink the margins or expand the margins in order to make the paper fit the page limit. And it doesn't, it may affect their grade for trying to get out of the page limit, but it doesn't affect the meaning of the text at all, or really the experience of reading. Verse, on the other hand, as something that's lined out and becomes the basis of our definition of poetry, verse, there, there's something, and it's not always the same thing, depending on the, the language, depending on the tradition, depending on a particular poem, but there's something that stops the line, right? Something that ends the line, even though you could keep writing, even though you could fill the page, you stop and move to the next line. And in some ways, it's obvious stuff in that if you anybody looks at a poem, typically you see there's a lot of white space around it, right? That white space is there, unlike prose, which fills the page, that white space is there because something has some formal practice or some formal pattern has given the end of the line. And so that notion of being lined out in verse form, uh, for me in this book, and I think for most of the history of poetry, that's been definitional for poetry. There's other things on top of that, but lined out discourse as opposed to just keep writing till you reach the end of the page is the first kind of definitional element of poetry. Now, of course, it's important to say that changes, right? To my mind, most of the history of most of literary history, poetry has had that element underlying it. But in the 19th century, into the 20th century, that, of course, drastically changes in that Walt Whitman is a key figure here, right? You look at the poems of Walt Whitman, and they're very prosy. They begin to fill the page. They don't pay so much attention to strict line breaks or strict length of lines. And that becomes very popular, and you get free verse, which is not without any structuring elements, of course, but is less inclined to follow the sort of strict patterns of when you stop a line. So this as a sort of first element in defining poetry, this is not going to cover all poetry, especially modern poetry. But in the Bible and in most of the ancient world and even up through early modern period, I think this has been one of the definitional elements of poetry is to have it in line form. And that line form. So I know you go into the history. I may be getting these two mixed up because coincidentally, I was listening to an introduction to the Old Testament. I read it before there was a revised edition that you contributed to. So I thought I was just going to be listening. Bergman's introduction. Yes. Yeah. So I thought I was just going to be listening to a book that I read 20 years ago or whenever it was that I read it. And then I was like, oh, wait, there's all this stuff about literature in there. Oh. At the same time that I'm reading this book to prepare to have a conversation with you. And then I realize. Yeah. Wait, oh man, I didn't realize this guy's saying the same thing. This is the guy. Okay, but I may be conflating the two, and I'm sorry if I'm doing that, but I hope you'll give me a pass. At least it sure. is your work. I'm not thinking somebody else's work was yours. Yeah. But for a long time, people didn't know what, I guess, comparing it to English poetry they were looking for some kind of meter and they there was a suspicion that maybe it's not poetry at all, but then they realize, oh, it's just different than the way that we think of poetry. Is there yeah. more you can say on that? Yeah, it's a complicated thing. The question of what you're getting at is essentially the question of to what extent have the principles of biblical poetry, especially the, the principles that give us lines, to what extent have they been recognized throughout the history of interpretation of the Bible or history of people reading the Bible. And I think there's a little bit of a overstated position sometimes 
which I think maybe sometimes I verge on, but I wouldn't want to quite claim there's an overstated position that the principles of biblical poetry were forgotten. And the idea is that ancient biblical poets knew they were writing poetry, of course, and that ancient Hebrew, ancient Israelite Hebrew readers would have recognized the formal elements of poetry and known when something was a poem and when it wasn't a poem. So the idea is that we clearly had poetry in ancient Israel, in other words, that was written and recognized as poetry. But the manuscripts that modern readers have available and the manuscripts that form the basis of translations into modern languages, for the most part, not quite entirely, but for the most part, don't represent the poetry, or at least a lot of the poetry in the, uh, of the Bible, don't represent it on the page in lines. They represent it as if it's prose. And so that has led to translations. King James, which is, of course, a very influential translation, underrepresents, let's say, the presence of poetry. It seems clear, for example, in the book of Psalms, that's always been recognized as poetry. And King James actually does represent that in sort of long poetic lines. But a lot of the other material, including the prophets, which who are often portrayed as speaking in poetry, it's not represented in the manuscripts or in translations as poetry. So uh, it seems like there's a sense in which uh, recognition of, 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 of poetry, of the existence of poetry in the Bible was understated or even maybe not recognized by a lot of readers. And there began to be a new interest in biblical poetry really in the 18th century is a long time ago now, of course, and we're still figuring things out, right? So it tells you how tricky these questions can be. But really in the 18th century and the 19th century, there began to be a lot more attention to, all right, it seems like there's poetry here in the Bible, but what is the basis for that distinction, right? What is the basis for that recognition that there's poetry? And especially this question of where do we see lines? Uh, if, they're not, if they're not always represented in manuscripts or in translations or published versions of the Bible, how can we begin to, to see those lines and to maybe represent them better as poetry so that you see that white space that you expect to see on the page with poetry? And uh, part of the problem, part of the reason that it, it's taking a long time and why people are still in some ways arguing about this question of what constitutes a biblical line, what's the, what are the definitional elements of the line, is that European poetry and modern, most modern poetry has derived from Greek and Roman poems, from Greek and Roman poetic practices, and there's a strong emphasis on meter. So meter is the pattern of stressed and unstressed syllables in a line, and you have a certain number of those stressed syllables, and then the line stops. So you get in English, again, pretty much up until Walt Whitman, and to a certain extent, large extent afterwards, English poetry is almost always has some recognizable pattern of rhythm. William Blake's poem, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright in the Forests of the Night. You can just hear that pattern of stressed and unstressed syllables, and it makes it sound different from regular speech, right? It gives us gives it this sense of craftedness, of being fabricated. And you also know that you're at the end of the line when you hit that number of beats. Tiger, Burning Bright in the Forests of the Night. Those are two lines, each of which is the same length, has the same pattern of stresses. So that those metrical patterns were very important for classical poetry, very important for European poetry and scholars, biblical scholars who are coming out of that literary tradition, or that's in, in their background, were often looking for those sorts of metrical patterns. And the other thing we noticed in that line, those two lines from Blake, of course, the Tiger poem, uh, is that it rhymes. And so that becomes very common as well in English poetry, especially uh, a rhyme at the end of the line. 
figure at the end of a line when it rhymes with the previous line, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. You have a strong sense of two different lines there that are matched with each other. So you start looking at Hebrew poetry in the Hebrew and rhyme is incidental. There are sometimes there will be rhyme. Sometimes there'll be syllables that match up in a way that, that, that sounds like a rhyme, but it's clearly not regular in the sense of used to establish particular patterns. Rhyme doesn't give us the end of lines in the way that it often does in English poetry, but it also seems like, yeah, this is something that people are still arguing about, but I'm in the, the camp, I suppose, that it seems to be the case that biblical poetry doesn't have meter, doesn't have those sort of regular metrical patterns. So without those sort of obvious markers of, of line patterns, it becomes a lot trickier. And, and with biblical scholars who study poetry, the most sort of watershed book, the most famous book is Robert Loth, the English a scholar who held a chair at Oxford in poetry. It wasn't a biblical studies chair, but he held an Oxford chair in poetry, the big Oxford chair in poetry in the 18th century. But his specialty was the Bible and biblical poetry. And so he wrote a book, again, a watershed book, in which he argued in detail with lots of examples of, argued in detail with lots of examples from the Bible for this notion that what establishes biblical lines is what he call, ends up calling parallelism that the two lines are matched with each other two, sometimes three lines and in, in, in a kind of a relationship that he, that he designates as parallelism. And that kind of broke things open a little bit that we started looking for the ways in which lines would match up with each other. And that helped to establish the lines, but they didn't seem to be strictly metrical. And we don't have the sort of obvious markers of rhyme that, that help us to establish those lines. So, while we're on poetry, this is something that stood out to me in this work that you mention, you know, epic poems, they're long and they're probably in verse form in order for them to be memorized better, to be transmitted orally. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, maybe not so much memorized the nature of that sort of oral performance. You're thinking of something like Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, or even ancient Near Eastern, less famous, but some still a little bit famous poems like Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is pretty well known, that I think it's not so much a question of memorization and spitting out the, the performance of these poems weren't so much spitting out something they memorized, which is in many ways a very textual way of thinking of these of poems, but rather orally performed. So oral performance and the difference, you know, the reason I balk a little bit on memorization is that it wouldn't necessarily always come out the same, that they're not repeat. They're not, I think our notion is that they're not in their mind looking at lines that they've memorized and repeating those lines, but in their mind, they're imagining the scene as they tell it. Uh, and so they're orally performed. In other words, no text in front of them. They're not written. The, the, these poems don't originate. These epic poems that we're talking about, Homer, Gilgamesh, et cetera, don't originate but with a poet writing it down on a page and then either reading it or memorizing it, but rather they originate in that moment of oral performance. But it's a very traditional form and different singers of these poems, we tend to think of them as singers. They would perform in a sort of a song or chant-like manner, apparently. The singers of these poems uh, still were in some ways very conservative in the sense that they're committed to tradition and everyone knows how this poem goes. And so here's my performance of this poem. And there's going to be a lot 
of commonality in other people's performance of the poem. There's going to be a lot of repetition, but the poems are being generated in the context of that oral performance. Yeah. Okay. So it may be that I read into that memorization was a part of it. So noted yeah. on that, but for the oral transmission part, because this is the thing that I bumped on. Do we, yeah, do we among the experts, do the experts on the Hebrew Bible think that it was written down sooner than some of the these things, the texts that we have from other adjacent cultures, or did it circulate orally as well? And I understand if I'm asking you to go into territory that like, I don't work in that. I'm not a source critic or a text critic necessarily, but that that got lodged in my brain as I was reading is wait. So is there less of an oral transmission timeframe for the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, that's so many of these things. There's our matters of fairly warm debate. uh, And especially the question of the dating of text that there's really a lot of different schools on when to date the text, but basically I think you could pretty much almost everyone say with maybe with a few exceptions at either end of this time period that talking about between the year 1000 BCE and say 300 BCE, a few that are going to be a little bit later than that, things in the book of Daniel, for example, and maybe a handful, literally maybe five or so texts, fairly short poetic texts that might predate the year 1000, but not everybody would buy that. So we've got this sort of period of, I don't know, maybe 700 years in which pretty much everything in the Hebrew Bible, this is not the New Testament, of course, would have been produced. Now, I I think the question of how that dating relates to oral versus written literature, oral poetry versus written literature, is a little tricky in that I think one of the things that, and I'm not, a lot of the work on oral performance, of course, comes out of classics, comes out of, particularly out of Homeric studies, which is where a lot of that work was done in the 20th century. And I'm certainly not a classic scholar, and I'm not an expert on oral performance poetry, But one thing that does seem to be clear is that certainly orally performed epic literature, and by epic, we mean basically really long poems, really long narrative poems, very long poems in the form of verse that tell stories. And the stories typically are set in a mythic past with great heroes and gods that very active on the scene. So the Iliad, the Odyssey, Gilgamesh, et cetera, that seems clear that those orally performed epic poems predate uh, written literature predate any of the written down versions. For example, Homer gets written down, but by the time Homer gets written down, it has been the Iliad and the Odyssey have been performed for many generations. So, literature is again get back to my sense of we're talking about two main categories of poetry in the Bible: poetry and prose narrative. That the literary category of poetry is almost certainly a more ancient category, and it doesn't require writing down. And so these. These ancient epic poems would have originally been performed in front of an audience. Writing then is the late technology in human existence, right? Humans have existed as humans for hundreds of thousands of years and uh, produced a lot of poems in those times. But once writing comes about, poems begin to be written down, of course. But also then people start using using writing for other sorts of things, including these non-poetic prose narratives. So writing, once writing as a technology begins to be available to authors, then they can do things in writing that they couldn't do in oral performance in front of an audience. And that's, I think that, is that, that context of writing, of the technology of writing, is very important for the development of Hebrew, of biblical prose narrative. 
And so writing allows these authors to do things that they couldn't do to develop new forms of literature and new techniques than they could have done or would have done performing in front of an audience. But that doesn't then mean nobody's performing poems anymore, right? And so the, one of the things that we're, I think that I say we, but like you, I'm not really an expert on this part of it, uh, but one of the things that we can learn from those who are tracking oral performance in, in, in various cultures is that once writing exists, those two things will exist side by side. Writing, written narrative doesn't replace entirely orally performed narratives. It will eventually, like right now, you can't, that art form is pretty much dead. There were some field recordings of Yugoslav, of Slavic performers in the 30s, I think, who were still maintaining this kind of ancient tradition of long oral performances. And that really influenced classical scholars thinking about the origins of Homer. So if we get back to the dating, I think that what we would say is that the poetic form that we see, the lines in biblical poetry are indebted to oral performance. That notion of poetry is rooted in that probably. Whereas the prose narratives only arise once writing becomes available, but the two will coexist perhaps for a while. The oldest, so in other words, the probably the oldest literature in the Bible, this is me, I'm not sure this is much of a consensus about this as it used to be, but there, for a long time, there was a sort of a consensus among scholars that the uh, oldest bits of the Bible, the things that went back maybe before the year 1000 BCE, over 3000 years ago, were a handful of poems that had come out of that oral tradition and got written down. So Exodus 15, the song of song at the sea, where Moses sings this, sings this long poem, praising God for freeing them from Egypt and destroying the, destroying Pharaoh's army. The poem in Judges 5, of again, the triumphant victory poem over thanking God for victory over the Canaanites, which ends with that super interesting and super weird little scene of JL, the woman JL killing Sisera, the great chariot commander, is another one of these fragments that, for perhaps fragments of an earlier existing oral tradition that would have been comparable maybe to what we see with Homer, with the Iliad and the Odyssey. At the same time, those, that only survives in fragments. We don't have any long, we don't have any long narrative poems in the Bible. We have long prose narratives in the Bible. The book of Genesis, the story of David, or maybe the main examples, the Exodus story is mostly prose narrative. So we have long prose narratives, but we don't have any of those long epic poems, but we maybe have fragments of a tradition that did exist and has had not been preserved. And so the reason that I was curious about that part is not, yeah. and I thank you, I'll say, for for humor and long, boring explanation. No, no, no. I told look, I told you, and I've, you're not the first guest I've said this to. I mute my mic because I and the listeners are more interested in what you have to say than what I have to say. But it was not a long, boring answer. That was a diversion that I yeah. instigated away from the literary part of this. But I do think it's relevant because, yeah, yeah. so in the same way that if we were, I know we're talking about the Hebrew Bible, but if we were talking about Paul. Yeah. For a contemporary English-speaking American reader of a Pauline epistle to, to understand the performative aspect of it, which is something that's still debated, still not understood yeah. really by the experts, could be helpful in communities or individuals reading those texts and understanding them. So that's why I, I, that's why I forced that detour 
was because I, I think it's helpful. Yeah. Now, in uh, Paul's case, I would say there you have a pretty explicitly literary genre, right? He writes letters. Uh, yeah. Letters are, by definition, written, right? Yeah. Uh, and so that's literary in the sense of something written down. So you do have that literary genre, I think. And he even said, in the end of Paul's a couple of the letters, he'll say, look, I'm writing this with my own hand, right? That he would have been dictating it, in other words, to a amanuensis, to a scribe. But at certain points, he'll say, look, I'm writing with my own hand here. You can see the writing's different calling attention to the, the material form. Uh, and so I think the letter is, in fact, a very, a very a form very much tied to writing. You write it and you send it. And it's interesting. It's an example, to, interesting example for thinking. And I know this is a little bit of a detour, so I don't need to do it too much. But to think about the difference between dictation and performance. Right. So Paul's not performing in front of an audience. He apparently did that. Right. He talks in his letters about when I came to town and I put on this show and here's what happened. But the letters themselves are dictated rather than performed. And so they're written and they're read. And so I think that's different from an oral performance of an actual narrative. So I think I'm following a thread here. But so this is making me think of where you pointed out in the book that there will be a larger text written in prose that has poetic passages so one where does that occur and two what is the utility of that for the author and for the the recipient of the message yeah yeah good question that's a big part of the book uh, as we've indicated earlier is distinguishing between these two forms these two types of literature which take different forms and are used for different things and on the one hand we've got and again it's tied to this at the time the relatively new technology of writing and by the way, I should say the, the main book on this question of the importance of writing for generating or for generating the distinctively distinctive nature of ancient biblical narrative, of Hebrew narrative, is Robert Kawashima's book. It's called Biblical Narrative and the Death of the Rhapsode, which is almost 20 years old, I guess now. But anyway, that book by Robert Kawashima is, I think, a crucial work here in exploring ways in which biblical authors really innovate make use of writing in order to innovate a new way of, of generating narrative, of telling stories, which take the form of prose. Uh, again, the story, long story of David, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the book of Genesis are classic, in many ways, classical biblical narrative. So we've got on one hand this prose narrative. So in ancient Israel, or at least in the Bible, and when you're going to tell a story, a narrative with plot, characters, dialogue, resolution, all the classic elements we expect in the narrative, you do that in prose, not poetry. The poetry then is used primarily for non-narrative genres, for other genres, other types of, of literary works that don't tell a story, but do other things. And the question of what the other thing is, what the other things they do is perhaps multiple, but for example, to generate love poetry, right? The Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon is love poetry, which doesn't tell a story. It's not a narrative. It takes the form of poetry, and like most love poetry is about giving expression to the feeling of love, exploring what it's like to feel that. The book of Psalms, we've mentioned our poetry, of course, and they're about giving expression to praise and lament. A few other things going on, but that experience, that, that expression of praise and lament, which are not narrative genres, right? So we have these two forms that emerge in ancient Israel, prose narrative, which tells stories, and verse poetry which typically doesn't tell stories, but is used for other things. 
But as you point out, and, and the question you ask here is, uh, what do we, where do we see those two things coming together? As you point out, those two, uh, th- those two forms sometimes are entirely separate. The whole book of Psalms, 150 chapters, is all poetry, no narrative. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's an entire book that's all prose, and it probably isn't quite. But again, if we look at the book of Genesis, if you're just flipping through it, there's very little white space, right? It just fills the page, f- fills the page. But every once in a while in the book of Genesis, every once in a while in the story of David in First and Second Samuel, and at least twice in the book of Ruth, which is a much smaller prose narrative, every once in a while within this, these blocks of prose narrative, there'll be a poem. You'll just notice if you're paging through your Bible that, oh, here's some white space around this little portion of text here. And we know that's poetry then, that it's lined out. So yeah, occasionally within the context of a narrative, of a story that's being told, a poem will pop in. Uh, and one of the things we notice about that is that it's always in the voice of, it's always put in the mouth of a character. The narrator seems pretty consistent. I'm not sure we could find any any exceptions to this, but at some point, uh, maybe in the later stuff, you could find an exception, but seems very consistent, very intentional that the narrator will not speak in poetry. Now, the narrator of epic poems speaks in poetry the whole time, right? The narrator of an epic poem is the singer, the speaker. So it's all poetry. It's all in the voice of the narrator. The narrator in the Bible, however, has become this third-person objective narrator who doesn't, for the most part, address the audience, who doesn't call attention to the performative aspect because this is written literature. There is much less of a performative aspect. But characters within the narrative will sometimes break into song, right? We can think of it as in some ways like a musical where it's a little bit unrealistic, let's say, but this is a literary work and characters will break into song. In other words, the author will give them a poem, right? The author will put a poem in their mouth. And so we see that really in some ways really striking example is at the beginning of 2 Samuel. This is right in the middle of the story of David. And David, many chapters earlier, had been anointed by the prophet Samuel as the next king. The God through Samuel has chosen David to replace Saul, who was the first king of Israel. Now, of course, Saul doesn't like that, resists it. The various points tries to kill David. And so David has this identity as the future king. He's been anointed, he's been chosen, but he hasn't yet been able to, to sit on the throne. He hasn't yet been able to claim that kingship because Saul, of course, is resisting. Saul and Saul's son Jonathan are both killed at the end of 1 Samuel. At the end of the first book of Samuel, chapter 31, I guess, Saul and Jonathan, Saul's son, who would be next in line for the throne, but who also in the narrative and the story has had this close, complicated relationship with David, that Saul and Jonathan have both been killed. And all of a sudden, it looks like the throne is open. Right? Here's David's chance. And David's response to hearing about the death of Saul and Jonathan in battle, they die fighting the Philistines, is this sort of highly polished, formal poem, right? He's presented as breaking into songs, breaking into this poetic form, uh, which is really striking. So it's striking in the sense that it's a great poem. If you're going to look at, if you're going to make an anthology of great poems from the Bible, you got to put this David's lament over Jonathan and Saul from 2 Samuel 1, 2 Samuel 1. You got to put that in the book, right? It's just one of the great polished poems of the Bible. And you can do all sorts of good poetic analysis of it. You can just imagine encountering this poem in a class on ancient poetry in which you're not reading the David story, but the 
let's say the teacher just says, here's a really good ancient poem, analyze it. And you can just go through and just see very interesting forms of parallelism, of line structure, very interesting imagery, very interesting kind of rhetorical flow, all sorts of analysis you can do without necessarily thinking about it as something put in the mouth of David as a response to the death of Jonathan and Saul. But at some point you have to say, the context in which we encounter this poem is not an anthology of great poems. It's not a freestanding poem. It's something put in the mouth of David that represents his response to the news of Saul and Jonathan's death. And that adds another dimension. So the poems that, you know, again, we'll have prose narratives going along telling a story. A character breaks into song or poetry is given to a character. We then analyze it as poetry because that reveals a lot of what's interesting about it. But then we also realize it has some function in the narrative that it's adding something to the narrative that otherwise is unavailable within the narrative. So that's the point at which knowing the differences between how ancient Hebrew authors used poetry and how they used prose can help us to see, oh, what is it that gets added by this poem here that wouldn't have been there if they had just kept in the form of prose? So the combination of these two forms opens up a whole new kind of different ways of impacting the reader, let's say. Is there a spectrum, I guess it would have to be, of suspected motivations for that? Like in the case of the David poem, obviously it's an emotional high point and you want to, something that's going to drive that home, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think how how do these poems function? I think you're right. There's a spectrum, a a variety of ways in which they function. It's not always the one thing, Uh, but we see that the author then is able to bring in the resources of biblical poetry into this context and do different things with them. But the, the resources we can identify, I think, which is mainly the expression of, this is one of the things I talk about in the book at some point, I think, the expression of feeling and thought, which we haven't talked about this yet, although it's in the book, I guess we haven't talked about yet, is one of the kind of most striking elements of biblical narrative. To my mind, almost defining element of biblical narrative is the way in which it keeps the inner lives of its characters opaque to readers. In other words, uh, and this is just amazingly pervasive and very important. And typically, I think it's just something people don't notice until someone points it out to you. Or you may implicitly notice it, but realize how important it is when someone points it out to you that by and large, we have no idea what anybody is thinking or feeling in these biblical stories. And that's super important, right? That's the motivation, right? The motivation for what people do in these stories is their inner lives. And we're used to having access to that, I think, in modern fiction, which is often very much about the interior lives. Ancient readers or listeners to narratives seem to have had access to that. For example, in the Iliad, the Odyssey, you always know what motivates for the most part. You seem to know what motivates everybody. But one of the things that biblical authors do in this, as they develop this new form of prose narrative is to give this sort of what we might call in many ways, a very early form of realism, realistically rendered characters. I'm tying this opaqueness of the characters, the lack of insight into what they think or feel. Uh, I'm calling it in some ways a form of realism because of course, in the real world, that's how it is, right? In the real world, you can't get in somebody's brain and know what they're doing and know what they're thinking or why they're doing what they're doing. But at the same time, we don't have, it's not like we have nothing to go on, right? At the same time, we become very good at interpreting, right? We're constantly interpreting other people 
based on what they do and what they say. And so if they do this or they say this, we may have a pretty good idea what they're thinking. But we also remind ourselves that we never really know what someone's thinking. And we never really know everything that somebody's thinking. Even if we may know, here's why this person did this, or think we know that, that opaqueness with our experience of other people is then reflected in biblical narrative, where instead of the author telling us what it is that David is thinking at this point, or what it is that Ruth is thinking at this point in the story of Ruth, instead of telling us that, it's left to our interpretation, right? We have to think about what is Abraham thinking? Maybe the most famous example of this is what is Abraham thinking when God says, kill your son? The narrator doesn't tell us, of course. And because of that, because nothing is reported, readers will often say, Abraham's thinking nothing. He's just obeying. He's just a paragon of of obedient faith. He's not worried. He's not questioning or anything. That seems a little unrealistic, right? Uh, It seems that this is not a human being if that's the case. So we wonder, what is Abraham thinking about this? What's his inner life? It must be in turmoil, but what's going on? And we don't know, but we're, but we're meant to wonder about that. So this pretty clear literary tool, let's say, or literary element of biblical narrative that generates a lot of ambiguity, a lot of things we're not sure about in the narrative, is the opaqueness, the lack of access to characters in our lives. But biblical poetry, on the other hand, getting back to the question of what does biblical poetry bring into these narratives, biblical poetry, on the other hand, gives great expression to feeling and to thought. So the Psalms, which we talk about, are just expression after expression of praise or lament. The Song of Songs is just filled with expressions of love and desire. The book of Job, which is largely, but not totally poetry, is filled with expressions of thought and feeling and arguments between Job and his friends. So in other words, ancient biblical literary tradition seems to have done this sort of division of labor where we use prose for narrative and there are certain things we do in certain way with narrative in certain ways narrative works, one of which is this realistic portrayal of human characters who have a psychological depth that is unavailable to us. But there's other things that we can do in poetry and one one of those things is to explore in more depth the inner life, to represent the inner lives, the, the feelings and the thoughts of the characters. So one thing that happens, I think, when biblical, when a poem gets brought into a narrative form or someone's allowed to speak in poetry is that expression of passion, the expression of feeling, or the expression of thought. And so that's one of the things I think to look for if you're reading along a biblical narrative and all of a sudden somebody starts speaking in poems, there's something, there may be several things going on there, but one of those things is probably we're getting some insight into what they're feeling or thinking at that point, which otherwise we have very little of. So the example of Abraham reminded me, and I have it highlighted here in my notes, there's a passage pretty early on in the book where you say, to read the Bible solely as a source for theology or ethics or history or as any other kind of, quote, source for that matter, is to go is to, go to it in order to extract information that one can take away. Having done so, there is no need to go back. There's more to the passage that I highlighted, but I think that gets to what I was thinking as you're talking about Abraham specifically. The reader, the commentator who says, Abraham's not thinking anything he's just doing, is not approaching this as literature. They must have some other motivation to extract and go about their way or their day. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that with that example, especially I see this all the time with my students uh, who oftentimes will do a close reading day on this story. 
And that with that story in particular, there's almost always some theological issues, issues about the character of God, in other words. Even if, as a lot of my students are, even if you're not religious, like even if this isn't your Bible and you don't really care about the biblical God, people just tend to assume that the biblical writers must always have wanted to portray God positively, must always have wanted God's motivations to be pure. And there's also a tendency to read main biblical characters as moral paragons or great examples of faith. In other words, people, the characters themselves become cardboard characters, right? They become flattened characters who are only existent in literature to teach us how to be faithful or teach us how not to complain. The lesson here, if you push this far enough, people push it to a certain extent, but the lesson here would be, oh, this teaches you not to complain when God tells you to kill your child. And at that point, it sounds ridiculous, right? But that's the sort of logical outcome of, of this, of a reading that wants to draw a moral lesson. In the first place, wants to draw a moral lesson. That, that quote you, you read from the book was about not literature may very often does, of course, deal with moral issues, deal with moral, ethical, theological, philosophical novels and various forms of literature can deal with all sorts of interesting issues, but it's typically not there. To, typically doesn't teach a direct lesson, right? Uh, and so if you're reading any narrative from the Bible or any poem as something that, oh, this teaches this lesson, let me write that down and then I can go on and see what I learned from the next thing. You're losing so much of what's going on there. So with this story, it's very hard to get just a straightforward moral lesson that is not a little bit crazy, right? It's not a little bit morally deficient, right? To say that if God tells you to kill your child, your proper response is to just go ahead and kill your child and not question. That's ludicrous. And no one's going to respond that way. So there must be more going on in this story. And a lot of what's going on is in the background. A lot of what's going on is in the background of what is motivating the various characters. So the other thing we notice about, so again, if we take this principle of biblical narrative, which is it tends not to give us insight into the characters' inner lives, and therefore we don't know what motivates them. Therefore, we don't necessarily know what they want to happen in any particular scene. We apply that to God as well. God is a character in the narrative. So we can say with Abraham, we notice that. We don't know what he's thinking. We don't know what he's feeling. But boy, that's an important element of the story. We could say that about Isaac. We also notice that we don't know what Isaac's thinking about this trip with his father, which Abraham has been told is going to end in the, the literal sacrifice, the slaughter of Isaac. At what point does Isaac begin to perhaps get a sense that there's something strange about this trip? But we could also notice that we don't know what God's thinking, right? This is the nature of biblical narratives that doesn't give us insight into God's inner life either. And that's really important in a literary sense. It's important for this text, right? The plot is being generated in Genesis 22. The plot is being generated by God saying, go sacrifice your son. But we don't know why God is asking this. And to a certain extent, I'll typically push students to consider the possibility that God actually doesn't want Abraham to do this. That if this is a test, right? So we're, we're told that it's a test. It's a te test can be failed or they can be passed, but we don't know exactly what's being tested. That's not spelled out for us. We don't know exactly what Abraham has to do to pass or fail the test. And so it's possible precisely because the author does not tell us what God wants, does not tell us what God is thinking, only tells us what God says to Abraham. It's possible to imagine that God wants Abraham to resist. God wants Abraham to say, no, I'm not going to kill my son. And that to pass the test, he would have to resist. That's a little bit of a counter 
or it reads counter to obviously what most people think about the text. It's a little bit of a counter reading of it, I think, but it's possible precisely because of this practice of biblical authors not to give us access to the characters in their lives. And I'm yielding to you on this one. As yeah. an expert, you're saying you don't know why Hebrew authors did this. Oh, that's a little question of why, of why they wrote stories like this. Yeah, I think it's a hard question to answer right to why do artists do what they do? And I think, and the question then, the related question, I think, is it intentional, right? Are they aware that they're doing this? And I think they are, right? I think biblical authors are very much aware as they're developing this new style of realistic representation of human lives and a realistic representation of the world, uh, that they're, I think they're fully aware that they're doing this and they're in there develops this convention, convention meaning it's accepted, but you could do it otherwise, right? You certainly can do a prose narrative that gives all sorts of access to characters in their lives. You see it in all sorts of novels. Biblical authors could have done that. And so I think it seems to be a pretty conscious choice that we're going to develop this style in which we leave so much in the background, in which so much is unstated, but important for the narrative. And so the question of why do they do that, right? Why do they seem to have intentionally developed this very distinctive style? I think, I think in some ways, it, again, I give it a kind of a literary answer, which is it makes for more complicated stories, right? It, it makes for more complex stories, which draw the reader in. And now it doesn't necessarily draw the reader in, right? All sorts of readers will read Genesis 22 and say, oh yeah, I know what's going on here. Always be faithful to God. Let me move on to the next text. But if you take it seriously and engage it as a work of literature, and you take, going back to that quote from Toni Morrison, right? Authors put a lot of work into making these narratives go in a particular way. We should put in work to read them that way, that if you really engage it, then all of a sudden, all these ambiguities come out. Who, who is thinking what? When are they thinking it? What are the intentions of God? What are the intentions of Abraham? So I think the style, I think, is at least partly developed in order to do precisely this, right? To give us complicated, ambiguous narratives that require interpretation. So instead of writing didactic literature, which some biblical authors do, the book of Proverbs, for example, is very didactic, right? Here's how, here how, here's what you should do. Here's a lesson to be taught. Parables are, di are didactic. They're meant to teach a lesson, let's say. But these realistic narratives, rather than being meant to take, teach a lesson, are there to engage thought. Think about the issues that are raised. And one of the things we that we could notice about Genesis 22 is that when you think about what issues this narrative is raising and the ambiguities of the narrative is, are raising is the question of religion versus ethics, right? Setting up this tension of religious duty versus ethical duty. Religious duty being your relationship to God, ethical duty being your relationship to other people. And people tend to think those things go together. I like to think those things go together. But here we see, what if they're separate? What if God says one thing and your child says another? God says, kill your child. And the child says, be my father. Which of these is Abraham going to choose? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tense plot moment, right? It's a sort of intense moment for Abraham. But for readers thinking about this, you can see how that can very easily become a question of what happens when two of your highest priorities come into conflict? How do you go about making those sorts of choices? So I think the development of this style is on the one hand, a sort of intentional literary 
move, this is going to generate a new form of literature, a more realistic representation of the psychological complexity of humans. But I also think maybe there's a sort of practical aspect, practical intention of drawing readers in, of generating interpretation as opposed to just taking away answers. Are there extra biblical examples of Hebrew literature from roughly the same time as biblical texts, or is this what no, we get? No, that's what we get. There's, I should say there's some, there's a lot of what's often called epigraphic writings, things carved, things scratched into pots and things like that, but no real, no not long text, no narratives. No. So the, presumably there were in ancient Israel, right? Presumably there was lots of other literature, both poetry and narrative that got produced in ancient Israel, but the canonical process preserved, the things preserved in the canon were passed on and the things that didn't get preserved disappear. So sometimes people will often notice that sometimes in biblical narrative, especially the narrator will refer to some other work. If you want to read more about the kings, go read the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. It's a work that doesn't exist anymore. Or if you want to learn about more about the battles that God fought for Israel, go read this book called The Wars of the Lord, the book of the wars of the Lord. So presumably those existed and ancient Israelites could go read those but they disappeared. I don't know why exactly, but that reminded me of, there's an author named Jasper Ford. And he, yeah, yeah. I've read okay. Some of that. So yeah. in, in the Thursday next series, he will reference books that don't exist. Time has changed, right? He yeah. changes the, yeah, yeah. That's what I thought of that, that there's some Jasper Ford or Terry Pratchett like character <laughs> writing yeah, down, yeah. go check Went this other scroll. So I figure I don't want to take up too much of your time, so we'll start to wind down. I will take very short introductions, always have a really good further reading list. So I will take that and put that in the show notes. In addition to that, do you have any books or podcasts or YouTube channels, blogs, anything like that? But I want to throw this one out there. Are there biblical translations that you think are better for literary appreciation and then commentaries for just average readers who want to better understand the literary complexities of Hebrew Bible. Yeah. You know, I, I have to admit, I'm not, I'm not big on knowing all the different translations. So I, I haven't done the sort of comparison to say, oh, here's one that's obviously far superior. My sense is most of the sort of mainstream, mainstream translations are pretty good. The New Revised Standard Version is what I almost always use with my students, and that's pretty good, but you're always going to find little things here and there that you don't like. But the JPS Tanakh, that's not published by a Jew- Jewish publication society, is also very good, I think. Those both read well, and they both represent poetry on the page when it's poetry and represent prose when it's prose. They may miss some things here and there. Some of the times when characters speak in poetry, translators don't notice it, I think. But I think those, any of those modern translations are pretty good. As far as works, I've already recommended the book by Robert Kawashima. It's pretty technical. That's pretty dense scholarly work, but if you really wanted to explore, especially this emergence of biblical Hebrew narrative tied to the technology of writing and the differences from oral performance, long oral performed, orally performed epics, that's a really important book, but pretty scholarly. There's two books by Robert Alter, which a lot of people know, The Art of Biblical Narrative and The Art of Biblical Poetry. It devotes a book to each, and those are both, I think, very good and geared towards a general audience. There's been a lot of work recently on poetry, right? The, in some ways, the sort of literary approach to the Bible, 
reading closely, thinking about literary facts, not necessarily tying, not necessarily using it to do history or using it to do theology. So that's a, the literary approach, or let's say an emphasis on literary criticism of the Bible or reading the Bible's literature arose in many ways as a response to, or as an alternative to the long tradition of reading the Bible only religiously, right? People went to the Bible to learn about God or learn about ethics, didn't think much about literary art, let's say. Modern biblical scholarship for 150 years was closely focused on historical questions. How do we use these texts to reconstruct the history of ancient Israel? And literary approaches in the 20th century were an alternative to those sorts of things, but it tended to come in, the literary categories tended to come into biblical criticism, the biblical scholarship in the form of narrative primarily. So there was a lot of attention to narrative in the second half of the 20th century, much less to poetry. And I think in the last, let's say, 15 or 20 years, which is recent in scholarly terms, right? Last 15 or 20 years has been a lot more really interesting, nuanced work being done on poetry, uh, supplementing all the work on narrative in the 1980s and 90s, let's say. One of the, the person that is uh, to us, maybe not largely responsible for that, but very influential and important in this new work on poetry is Chip Dobbs Alsop, who's at Princeton Seminary, F.W. Dobbs Alsop, hyphenated last name, uh, who goes by Chip, has written a lot on biblical poetry, big fat book called On Biblical Poetry. Again, pretty scholarly, but his work always pays attention. He's written commentary on lamentations, various, ver- various things on specific books that always pay attention to poetry. But he's also had a big effect by training students at Princeton Seminary. So a lot of the new work on poetry that's interesting to me is I notice our Chips students. So Elaine James, who now is at Princeton Seminary as well, she has a pretty recent book with Oxford called On Biblical Poetry. I think maybe it's called Reading Biblical Poetry. And she also has a book on the Song of Songs, which is very good. Another Chips student, Blake Cooey, uh, is writing on poetry, has a book on Isaiah, the poetry of Isaiah. So those are all Song of Songs, Isaiah, those are all specific works on particular books of poetry. Yeah, I could probably think of a lot more, but uh, that would be a way to get started, maybe. Actually, I should say, you know, I don't think I've mentioned this yet at all, but behind a lot of what I was saying about biblical narrative, especially the opaqueness of characters and the ambiguity is, everybody should read the chapter by Eric Auerbach called Odysseus's Scar. It was written in the 1940s, translated to English, I think, in 1950 or so. And Auerbach, who was a German scholar, not a biblical scholar, but a scholar of romance languages, but was a comparative, used comparative literary method, had, he, he, had a, he has a book called Mimesis, a Greek word for imitation or representation. This book called Mimesis by Eric Auerbach, in which he does a history of literary style, history of European literary style. But he begins with a chapter comparing Homer, comparing ancient Greek epic poetry to biblical narrative. And he, I think, in the mid-20th century, just brought this very strong, complex literary sensibility to the text and began to really open up biblical narrative for later readers. That's a fantastic list. Thank you. I can tell you're a man who's put a syllabus together before. Yeah, yeah. 27 years worth of syllabi. Yeah. I appreciate that. Do you have anything else before we close off here? Yeah, I guess I would say just if you're going to try to read the Bible as literature, enjoy it. Right? It's, it you, I've said we have to invest the time to read close and all that, and it sounds like work doing that. But 
if you start looking at the line structure of the poems and start thinking about the metaphors of the poems, all of a sudden they become more interesting. It becomes more fun to read them, knowing that there are things to look for. And read the book of Genesis, read Exodus, read the story of David in First and Second Samuel as if you're reading a novel, right? The, the, here's a plot, here's characters, they're complicated characters, get absorbed into it. So I think that's literature is something that you get absorbed into in a way that you don't necessarily with other genres, with religious writings or with historical writings, you're often there to learn things, which is great. But literature is not so much about teaching you things or giving you lessons as absorbing you, shaping your imagination. So I think it's, look at it not, look at it not just as, oh, I need to adopt a scholarly approach, but rather, oh, this is going to help me see things I wouldn't have seen, and they're going to be interesting things. That's good advice. Todd Linnefeld, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and rate the podcast on your favorite platform. If you are interested in following, supporting, or engaging with the podcast anywhere else, check out the link tree that I've hyperlinked in the show notes. I try to put episodes out as soon as possible for $5 a month on Patreon. So if there's something that I've announced or you've seen on social media, just know $5 a month. You can listen to every episode that I have edited and I try to get them up within a week of recording the conversation. Take care.